Hello, Duke fans, and welcome to episode 311 of the Duke Basketball Report podcast. It is Wednesday, April 28th, 2021. We are about a third of the way through 2021. Can you believe it? But we have a great conversation with you today that we're going to share. I am Sam Klein. I am your host. I'm joined, as always, by Jason Evans and Donald Wine. Guys, we'll do very quick hellos before we get to the, uh, the very exciting special guests that we have today. So, Donald, I, I will begin with you. Hello. Uh, good morning, sir. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty good. We had a great interview, and I'm looking forward. Let's just get, let's just get to it. Introduce let's do Jason, it. and then let's get let's to do it. it. Yeah. Jason, Hi, what's I'm up? Jason, listen to the interview. <laughs> <laughs> so we've got we'll 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 play a little bit of music right before we we bring them out. But we have a very fun conversation today with two people who are instrumental in running not just the men's basketball program at Duke, but all of the athletic uh, events and and teams at Duke. Who are Kevin White and Nina King? Kevin White, of course, is the current athletic director at Duke. He is about to retire this spring. Nina King is, for all intents and purposes, his his most loyal and most important. Um, second fiddle. And she's been, she's been running more and more of the day-to-day at Duke athletics over the last few years. We'll get into this conversation right now. We'll let you listen to that. And then we'll come back in a few minutes and, and react to it and give you our thoughts about it. So without further ado, here are Kevin White and Nina King. All right, Duke fans, we have had a series, I think, of, of good interviews the last few weeks, and this I expect to be no exception. We are joined by two members of the Blue Devil Athletics staff. We've got Kevin White, who has been the director of athletics at Duke since 2008. He previously was at Notre Dame in the same capacity and announced a few months ago that he's going to be retiring this spring after a long career in college athletics and a a well-spent one at a number of great institutions, most importantly, Duke University. We are also joined by Nina King, who is his senior senior deputy director of athletics. She's been Kevin's uh, right-hand person for the last 12, 13 years uh, at the at in Durham, um, running programs at Duke and, and being just as instrumental as he has in the operations of the athletic department. They've both been chairs of national basketball selection committees, Kevin White on the men's side and Nina King on the women's side. And most importantly, they were both technically professors of mine at the Fuqua School of Business last spring in Dr. White's and Nina's sports business class, which was one of my favorite uh, classes that I, that I took at Fuqua, you know, not not trying to to butter anybody up, but thank you, Dr. White and Nina King for joining us today on the Duke Basketball Report podcast. Happy to be here, Sam. And by the way, the grades are submitted. So they're uh, they're patronizing us at this point. We'll uh, we'll not provide any. It's not any grade in place. It's business school. It's business school. We loved having you in the class, Sam. You were terrific. Thank you. Thank you. My my, my greatest memory from the class, I'll I'll share this very quickly before we jump in, was that we had Bill Polian as a a guest in, in the spring when um, when everyone had gone virtual and he was having trouble with the zoom. So I had to interrupt him in the middle of the class to, to figure out how to get his iPad to work, which was a lot of fun, but we won't spend too much time on sports business class. If you are somebody who's interested in getting an MBA, I recommend applying to go to Fuqua so that you can keep taking sports business, which I understand is still going to be offered even, uh, after Dr. White retires, but that's a conversation for another day. We have a series of questions that we want to ask about Duke basketball and Duke athletics. So we will jump right into that. Um, Kevin and Nina, you have not had to replace the, I guess we'll let, let, let let's go right to the, the topics that, that basketball fans love to talk about, which is the speculation about, about uh, replacing coaches and, and coaching hierarchies and all those kinds of things. Um, you haven't had to replace the men's basketball coach or the football coach since you've been at Duke. Uh, David Cutcliffe, predates you by, I think, just a few months in Durham. So you haven't made those changes yet, but you did recently have to uh, replace a basketball coach in on the women's side and hire Kara Lawson, who I think the, you know, we haven't had a lot of, seen her uh, coaching a lot of games, but we've certainly heard a lot of great things about the uh, effect that she is having on the program, you know, inside with the student athletes and then also in the community. What does it take to hire a coach in, in, a, in a prominent program like women's basketball at Duke and what makes a person like Kara Lawson the right fit? Sam, let me, uh, let me just kind of respond very uh, briefly and toss it to, uh, to my daytime boss, Nina King. 
who uh, actually ran the, the Kara Lawson search. Um, but, you know, I, I think in this profession, we largely uh, have, uh, you know, we, we, we kind of keep as, uh, as a practice, maybe that's, that's the word, uh, the idea of having two or three names in your back pocket at all times and constantly reshuffling those, those folks of interest uh, should you have an appointment because there's, there's typically not a great deal of time. Uh, it, it, time is not your friend uh, when in fact you're in a, a coaching search. It, there's all you know, the immediate needs of the program as well as recruiting and the rest of it. So um, you, you really kind of need to get out in front. But let me, uh, let me kind of uh, toss that question to, to Nina specifically and that she made basically the, the Carol Lawson hire. Thanks, Kevin, and, and thanks, Sam. Great to be with you all today. And Kevin stole my thunder. I was going to remind you, grades for spring of 2020 are done, and we're focused on spring of 2021 um, for our sports business class. But um, yeah, quickly on the Kara hire, it was it it is a very exciting hire, and and um, we are just uh, so thrilled to have Kara here and embark on her first season next uh, fall when we start basketball next year. Um, as, as Kevin said, you know, it, we as leaders need to be prepared and um, never know what's going to happen and kind of keep, keep a short list at all times. It's um, constantly changing depending on what's happening in the market, who's realizing success, um, who's available, that, that kind of thing. And so um, when our previous head coach um, stepped away from coaching, um, we were ready. And I'm really just proud that we were able to complete the search in eight days um, from, from uh, notice of, of our previous coach stepping away until getting Kara signed, sealed, and delivered to our current women's basketball team. Um, it was a very fast-paced search, um, but it was a very thorough search. We engaged a search committee, a search firm. We had an internal search committee. Um, it was 2020, so we did so much via Zoom, which was um, interesting, hiring a head coach in kind of this new era that we were uh, living in. Um, but it was great. I mean, from the first first moment that I sat down and talked to Kara, um, incredibly um, great fit was, was um, apparent right away. Kara is a leader's leader. She's a relationship person. Everybody that I talked to described her um, ability to develop deep, meaningful relationships. And that is really important as a head coach, somebody that's able to relate to obviously our current student athletes, our recruits, families, parents, um, institutional partners within the athletic department, but also within Duke. I mean, we are part of a university community um, and Kara was able to kind of just jump in right away and, and develop all of those relationships. And she hit the ground running. Um, we had a great start to this season and, and then kind of took a little pause here She's on the, the recruiting trail like crazy. We have built an amazing team for next year. And so looking forward to, to 2021 with Kara. And you mentioned the, the quick timeline. You said that it was eight days between Coach P leaving and, and Kara Lawson stepping into the role. How do you, how do you manage a, an activity like that? Because you'll go years and years. Coach P had been at, had been at Duke I think longer than, than you all had and by, by about a year and all of a sudden you have to replace her in, in days. And, and this is not unique to that women's basketball search. This is every coaching search that we hear about. UNC just went through a very high profile search of their men's basketball head coach. And I think Roy Williams was replaced in like five or six days. So how do you do that on such a short timeline, knowing that the stakes are always high, be it recruiting season in season, what have you. Sam, we, uh, we in class talked a, a lot about the different functionalities that relate to HR. And one of those functions, actually, the early on function is pre-procurement, I think is how we tag it in class. And, and um, I, I think you're always window shopping. You're always paying attention to the market and playing what if. And so those are the, the three, again, names or four that you tend to have in the back pocket at the ready uh, when they're needed. Uh, Nina, you want to say anything beyond that? No, I mean, I think I also, um, you had mentioned both of us um, service on NCAA men's and women's basketball committees. And so I think that provided a great 
platform. Um, for me personally, I mean, I've been watching a lot of basketball games to, to prepare for committee work, but that, so that brought with it my ability to watch a lot of coaches um, on the sidelines and, and just kind of, you know, being prepared with the names. And so um, obviously, while it's not a requirement, it was really helpful for me um, to kind of just who's hot, who's up and coming in this, in this market and ready. And how did Kara Lawson indicate her interest? Cause she had been, she was an NBA coach at the time. So it wasn't like she was coaching teams that you were watching for, um, for, for tournament purposes. Right. Yep. But we had, um, been watching Kara on TV, uh, via her, her, um, position as an ESPN analyst. Um, and that's something, you know, she and I talked about, obviously she, she was coming into this having not been a college coach, but she has been at hundreds, maybe thousands of college, uh, women's college basketball practices via her assignment as, as an analyst. And so she knows what's a good practice, what's not. Um, she works in the USA basketball system. And so she's working with our elite level athletes in USAB. And, um, I mean, it, it wasn't, um, the lack of college coaching experience was not a negative for her because she was very prepared. She is very prepared for this role. And so are you keeping tabs on, you said that you've got that sort of list in your back pocket then, uh, but you're managing 20 something sports across, across the whole athletic department. Do you have to be maintaining a, a list of, of names that are not just, you know, basketball and football, like the most high profile coaches, but, but all the way down, you've, you've replaced a handful of other coaches in the times that, that the two of you have been in Durham. So I imagine that there is, that there's a lot of uh, constant upkeep on, on who's available and who's interested and, and who's sort of up and coming in, in all these sports. Sure. Sam, I don't, I don't have the number at the top of my, uh, or on the tip of my tongue, Nina may have it. She oversees. So one of the many functions she oversees is HR at the highest level. Troy Austin is our senior associate AD who, who looks after HR on a day-to-day basis. I think we've had like nine head coaching searches in my our, our tenure here over the last 13 years. I don't know if that's, I think that's fairly close. Um, but yeah, I mean, we, we've got to pay attention to the marketplace. And, and I think we're always in that, that pre-procurement mentality. We're always taking a good hard look at who could be next, who might fit and, uh, and paying attention to, you know, the other searches as they, as they tend to ebb and flow. Uh, contractual, contractual insights, pretty important. You don't want to spend a whole bunch of time uh, starting from square one uh, on the day, in fact, that that you find yourself in search mode or you wouldn't complete a search as they very successfully did at at UNC in four or five days or not unlike Nina completed our women's basketball search in eight days. I mean, I think you've always kind of have to be in in the pre-procurement mode and, and again, window shopping and paying very close attention to uh, who's uh, who, who makes sense in the marketplace, who's going to fit best at a place like Duke. That's obviously the, the you know our, our circumstance here, uh, but fit is really important and track record of success, fit, uh, contractual obligation, uh, all of that. And uh, so I, I think we have a pretty good handle on it. And yeah, you're right across 27 sports plus our athletic administrative team because. You know, oftentimes our people get invited to other places and, and a number of them have become ADs and that will continue. Uh, be, so we, we're always taking a good hard look. And then the last thing I would say, and then building the bench is important so that we're, uh, we're manufacturing the next generation. I know that's kind of a crude way to say it, but that's what we're doing. And we, we make an investment in somebody. We invite them to come to Duke uh, to be part of the athletics program and either on a coaching staff and or an administrative role. And hopefully if we've selected the right people and they continue to be upwardly mobile, you know, we'll have a lot of the next generation right here with us and we'll have an opportunity for them to see how they kind of operate in culture. Nina, do you have anything beyond that? I don't. I just would um, highlight that we have sport administrators for all of our sports. Um, I am specifically football and women's basketball. Um, and, and we, you know, across our 27 sports have a handful of us senior leaders um, overseeing the sports. And so really, should we have an opening in, um, you know, fill in the blank sport for a head coach, we'll really rely on our senior administrator. I mean, they've got their pulse on the 
on the beat of that particular team, current student athletes, needs, wants, desires, et cetera. And so um, really this is, um, administration is a, a team sport here at Duke. And so, yes, while it is ultimately Kevin's and then um, my, my responsibility as chief of staff working with all of our sport administrators to have some sort of an idea of the marketplace and what's going on, we'll really rely on our colleagues that are deeply embedded in their respective sports. Jason, why don't you go ahead with, with your questions and then we'll, and then we'll come back. Okay. Uh, so guys, I wanna change pace a little bit here. We've talked a lot about coaching. I wanna talk about the athletes a little bit because we're, we're at a major inflection point <laughs> in, in the relationship between schools and, and athletes and, and athletes in the outside world. And I'm talking specifically about what appear to be very significant changes coming to the rules regarding um, athletes making, profiting off of their name, image, and likeness. Um, talk to me, if you can, just for a moment about what you see coming down the line and, and how it's going to change the sport. Nina, would you like to go or would you want me to? Why don't you go first? I'll fill in. This is the easy <laughs> question. What do you mean? Yeah, this, is a very, this, is a, this isn't a terribly complicated question. I'll, I'll grab this one. Um, I, I would say this in trying to kind of bring it down to a, a level that is uh, maybe can be to some degree widely understood. There isn't anybody within college athletics, at least that I'm aware of, that doesn't want to do more for the student athlete population. Everybody wants to, to do what they can to help these young people have the very ex best experience that they can. Uh, they can possibly have, you know, and what, what does that universe look like? Well, quite frankly, it's about 480,000 young people are matriculating, and I use that word by design, uh, in, an, an, in an intercollegiate athletics experience, you know, amortized across like 1,100 NCAA schools. Uh, at Duke, it breaks down this way. We've got about 740 student athletes representing those 27 sports. So I think just innately, we want to do everything we can to provide them with the resources uh, to have a great experience. But at the end of the day, the, the new or a new resource system, and if we're gonna plug into name, image and likeness for a moment, and why wouldn't we? It's the hottest subject uh, in the moment. Um, you just worry about a redistribution of existing resources and maybe pulling some resources, at least this is my opinion, pulling the, the prospect of pulling resources from, uh, from Olympic sport student athletes and or Olympic sport programs and providing more resource access to higher profile, if not media sport, uh, broadcast property promoted sport student athletes uh, a redistribution of the existing pie is at least problematic for me. I, I'm concerned about that. A lot of people will, are, will argue and continue to argue that there'll be an infusion of additional resources when we move in this direction. I stay unconvinced about that. And uh, I, I, I actually think the pie is the pie and redistribution of an existing pie will presents, I think, winners and losers. So on, on that basis, uh, I, I'm concerned. I, again, I line up with, I think everybody else who would not want to do more. Uh, and I, I'm, I'm in the front of that line and my hand is up. I'm in favor of doing more, but a redistribution where, where uh, some of our, pro, our programs um, get, so to speak, uh, thinly supported or, and or yet more thinly supported I'm, I'm really, really, really concerned uh, about that prospect. So we're going to have to wait and see. I mean, NIL, if it was easy, uh, we already have this, this whole plan in place. You know, it was supposed to be vetted uh, by a committee, which worked on it for about two years, and it was supposed to be formally approved through the legislation process, legislative process in the NCA on January. And then we kind of said we weren't quite ready we, we're still working on the guardrails, which is the NCA language that we've started to utilize. And we thought we'd be there in April. Well, now we're talking about the summer and we, at the same time, we are, we're gonna butt into a bunch of state bills and it's gonna be really hard to have a whole bunch of different rules and regs at, at the state level. We, we, need, a, we need a national bill 
a, a federal bill and we need an NCAA plan uh, to kind of put this in place. But uh, again, the, the pitfall for me is, uh, is around like three things, redistribution of existing resources. I've made a case for that. I, I'm worried about that. I'm worried about representation of student athletes um, for, I've been an, an athletics director for way too long, by the way, 38 years, uh, it's time for the next generation. We need contemporary people and not so conservative people like me. But I, I would tell you, I'm worried about representation. We've spent th my 38 years keeping a lot of, uh, a lot of the, how shall I say it, the, the cottage industry players away from the athletes. And now we're gonna invite them to come in and represent the athletes. I mean, that's, that's a dramatic sea change, at least for me. And the last one is recruiting. Uh, to have some kind of a, a, so to speak, a level playing field so that this whole enterprise can function, I think is really going to be a challenge as we move forward. So NIL pr uh, provides, I think, lots of complications. Nina, what haven't I said? <laughs> you got it. Um, you know, I think I just want to kind of hit on timeline and, and how we got pushed um, from making some decisions here in January. Um, I think I heard yesterday we've got 30 states, maybe more than 30 states with state specific bills in their system um, with all kinds of effective dates, um, with a handful of them coming for this July 1st. So we need to figure out um, as an NCAA. Um, what these guardrails are and how this is going to work like yesterday. Um, we don't have a lot of time. July 1st is, is coming quick. So there's great pressure in the system to, to kind of figure this out more uh, fed, via federal legislation and NCA legislation um, so that we're not the Wild West with different state-specific laws, public school, private school, how is it going to all apply? Um, it, it By July 1st, it could be really messy. Um, and, and so that's kind of the first point. And, and I think everybody is feeling great pressure. And so us as an institution, you know, we, we really need to get our arms around education, how we're going to educate our student athletes, our coaches, staff, um, but we're just not quite sure what we're educating them on. Um, but I think a really important point, you know, the, the lawyer in me worries uh, a student athlete, 18, 19 years old is going to get a contract put in front of them and, um, you know, to endorse X product via social media. And this student athlete doesn't know um, that if they sign on the dotted line, they're signing away their intellectual property rights in perpetuity. Um, or there's a really vague morals clause. So um, if a kid ends up at shooters one night and does something and, and their pictures posted on social media, they could get their contract taken in a way, but they don't know that. Um, and so I am worried, uh, but, but the kind of other part of it is we don't want representation um, or advisors for these kids because we want to kind of stay amateur, amateur model. And so, and so what are we going to allow? It's going to be really messy here, but for us, education um, in terms of, of being aware for student athletes, but also student athletes that want to have opportunities um, to, comp to be compensated on their name, image, and likeness, educating them on how to build a brand and, and what does that mean? And how could you get opportunities? Um, so, you know, there's, there's a lot going around other things I'm concerned about how this may or may not disproportionately affect female student athletes, minority student athletes. Um, you know, we, there's a lot in the system here around this. Um, and like I said, we need to figure it out yesterday. <laughs> so uh, apparently this is an issue we can't resolve in a, in a, in a zoom conversation. <laughs> So let me take you to another major issue. And, and of course, we are primarily concerned on this podcast with college basketball, men's college basketball. Not that we don't cover other sports, but that's our main area of focus. And there's another major issue that is affecting men's college basketball today, um, especially a team like Duke, which is unprecedented, unprecedented turnover in programs. I'm talking about one and done, and I'm talking about transfers. We've, we've never seen anything like the number of transfers that we're seeing this year throughout the entire college basketball universe. Well, you know, <laughs> is this a problem? Is this something that needs to be dealt with? Um, it, it certainly from a fan perspective, the fact that we are churning through six plus new players every single year um, at Duke and, and other programs have it worse than Duke, by the way, it, it, it's bothersome to a lot of fans. I'll just toss that out there. <laughs> is, is there any, you know, like you guys can fix it again. Hey, spend the next five minutes fixing this problem for me. But anyway. <laughs> the, 
Jason, I, I would say that um, the environment around college athletics has become my uh, my favorite word to describe all this is permissive, and and we've allowed student athletes uh, for for some really good reasons to have the ability to represent their needs and their interests pretty liberally. And the transfer portal is what you're speaking to that now exists uh, for all sports, by the way, provides the, you know, the young people the opportunity to one-time transfer just about anywhere they want uh, immediately and actually anywhere they want. Um, and I'm going to throw it to Nina in a second and she can put her, her uh, counsel hat on, her attorney hat on in a second, but, uh, and maybe she can speak to it from, from that vantage point. But I think for our listeners, they need to know there are 1,400 kids I checked yesterday in the transfer portal right now. 1,400. Okay. Uh, there are 19, that's men's basketball. There are 1,900 in the football transfer portal as of yesterday. Uh, Nina told me uh, earlier today, there are around a thousand in the women's basketball transfer portal. So we've got kids coming and going like crazy. Now you take that for Duke, it's, it's, it's representative of 24, 27 sports where we've got all of that kind of mobility uh, around an athletics program. And, and, and before I do throw it to Nina, you know, it, it's, it's a new paradigm now. You know, I have a son that's a basketball coach at the University of Florida. And, uh, but, but, you know, and when I think, when I hear about the challenges he's facing, um, he's recruiting, it seems like almost an entirely new team every year. It's terribly different than when we have this iconic coach here in, in Mike Krzyzewski with our program. I mean, the, the rules of engagement are more similar than dissimilar based on the permissive activity that's taking place. And, um, Again, I think the public sentiment was that we needed to allow that kind of fluidity if, in fact, you know, student athletes uh, needed to have their, their needs and interests kind of satisfied. And so we, we've gotten to this place and it becomes now, you know, what kind of function, functionality measures need to be kind of standardized so that, that, that we can operate. And I, I don't know if we're going to ever be able to put the toothpaste back in the tube excuse the metaphor, but I, 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 this is a new frontier. And so back to, you know, the environment uh, uh, at large, you know, high school recruiting and or secondary school recruiting might take a back burner, or at least it'll be impacted if it doesn't take a back burner to the, the prospect of having seasoned kids from another institution that have put up really good numbers. I'm talking men's basketball. You're going to take a, a, a 16 or 17 year old, uh, at least verbally. Are, are you going to line? Are you going to kind of put yourself in a position where you're going to rely on a 17? Maybe it's better said 17, 18 year old as a freshman, as compared to somebody that's really seasoned and proven. That's 15 and eight. Uh, that is uh, the player of the year from a mid-major conference or a lower major conference. Where do you think that's going to take us? I mean, that whole, again, recruiting paradigm is going to take a massive shift and it's already happening. Nina, what, what, from the, the legal perspective and operational perspective, what, 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 can, what else can you provide? You know, I don't know much more legal. Like you said, we're moving towards more permissive legislation just in so many areas. Of, of NCAA rules, but just more unintended consequences, you know, how the, the smaller schools, mid-major schools are going to be affected um, with, with, you know, the mid-major player of the year moving on to maybe a power five school and in, in their roster. And so these smaller programs um, could get impacted pretty hard here, which I think is an unintended consequence. And then also vice versa on the kids, the, the student athletes that put their name in, I mean, with 1400 men's basketball players in the transfer portal, they're not all going somewhere. And then maybe once you put your name in, your coach doesn't want you back at your current institution. And so then what, and then you're not playing um, the sport that you love. So I think some of our student athletes could get really impacted here just by kind of testing the waters, if you will. It's, it's a bit of a mess, a little bit of a wild west here. <laughs> And the last thing I would say, and we didn't speak to this, and this is at this point, uh, you know, there's, there's no, there, are, there isn't empirical data to kind of support what I think may indeed occur. We'll know three, four or five years from now whether, whether this 
hypothesis that I'm going to state will, will actually hold water. I think it's going to have a real negative impact on graduation rates because you're going to have a lot of kids jumping and not finishing and uh, they're going to get overextended in, in the movement patterns. And, uh, and unfortunately, they're not going to be tied to an institution that's going to take them to, as what I'd like to say, degree completion. And when we got into all of this uh, in, in athletics, in higher education, American higher education, that is, uh, the degree completion or the prospect thereof was, was a, a pretty significant objective. I, I, I think we're going to operate in a way where, where that's going to get marginalized. And that really disturbs me. Yeah. And, well, and, and we didn't even, we, you know, I, Donald's going to ask about what you're just talking about there, but we didn't even talk about one and done here. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, but, 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 well, uh, well, well, Jason, now everybody's one and done. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. True. That's true. And honestly, that answer leads me to my next question. With the one and done era, even transfers, we've seen a lot of guys go pro in not just the, you know, the major revenue sports, but all the Olympic sports, um, but they come back. We've seen recently some basketball, football, and even some Olympic athletes come back to campus to continue their education. How do you as an athletic department work with those athletes who do choose to leave, but then say, hey, I still want to finish up my degree, I have one or two courses, or even as freshmen, they may have a couple of years left. How does the athletic department work with them to continue their education when they choose to want to do that in the off seasons? Donald, great question. And I, and I can only speak for Duke here on, 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 on this podcast, but you know, we've been incredibly receptive to having uh, you know, our young people come back that, that hadn't finished and, and, and working with them to find a way uh, to be back here financially and otherwise so that they can complete their degrees. And, you know, I, I would say, and this is going to be a little uh, snippy, but I don't think that's a, a widely shared sentiment around American higher education and college athletics. And there are some schools that, that really kind of um, subscribe to that mentality, but there are a fair number of institutions that when you're one and done and you leave, you're really, you're all done. Uh, that's not the case here at Duke. We, we are uh, very receptive to having kids come back. And in fact, we, oftentimes we recruit them back when it's, uh, when it seems to, when that window presents itself. Nino, any, any more on that? Really proud of our guys that are one and done for the most part are leaving Duke in good academic standing, completing their freshman year. So that means they are still going to school after the basketball season's over. Um, and just really proud of our, our Duke student athletes that, that choose that path. And so we're very supportive and, and provide as many resources as we can to kind of help them figure out when they come back, how it's going to work, all of that. Yeah. And it seems like, you know, just from the fans perspective, we see a lot of of them talking about them coming back to campus, which I think is a great thing. Now, I, I do want to shift a little bit because we've talked about basketball a lot, but we've talked about a lot of different sports and you guys have to oversee everything. How is it possible that the two of you in, in your department are able, how do you keep up with all of the sports that we do at Duke and the, and all these different rabbit holes and, and nuances that we have to, that you have to kind of, undertake with regards to compliance and everything else how do you keep up with all of that donald let me start in and nina can backfill because i'm going to get into one of the areas that she oversees i i think for most Duke fans they they uh they have a pretty good sense that we have 27 sports it represents as i've already said something like 740 student athletes but in addition to that you know we have about 90 percent of the student body participate in campus rec intramurals club sports physical education and then we've got this golf course uh, as well. So the, the enterprise is much larger than I think most everyday fans would, would realize. Back to the campus rec, uh, we have about 37 club sports on any given year. They're, they're fueled by student interest and, and obviously participation. So we have 27 varsity sports, 37 club sports, plus the whole array of other things going on. So to answer your question, how do we keep up? When, when you're at, at and when you're a senior, senior citizen like me, the answer is not very well. You do the best you can. It's, I mean, it's a, it's a treadmill that very rarely slows down. Uh, Nina's much better at keeping 
open up than I am, but uh, let, let me toss it to Nina. <laughs> and so that's why in August, while you're surfing those waves and we're still here <laughs> trying to keep up on the hamster wheel. No, <laughs> um, I mean, it's like I alluded to earlier, we've got a great team here. Um, so, so Kevin talked a little bit about our student athletes and our student participation. We've got 300 full-time employees, um, a zillion part-time contract seasonal workers, um, a lot of folks that really um, throw in with us and, and make this go. And we rely on each other. Um, it's impossible to know everything. Um, at the end of the day, the, the leader is responsible for everything. But that's why, I mean, we, we've got a, a great team that we trust, that we work together. I mean, we say Duke family for a reason, because we are all in the together making it go it's a big operation um, but really proud of of our whole team and what we've been able to accomplish two, well, two more co two more cohorts one you have forty thousand employees at duke and many of them have a have a real significant interest in intercollegiate athletics if not the rest of the enterprise and then we have about thirteen thousand donors in iron dukes and i don't think people realize that it's pardon me we have one hundred and eighty thousand living alums and and 13,000, uh, many of which are living alums, are, are involved in Iron Dukes and make this thing go. They provide about 25% of the resource that we invest in athletics every year. So there's a lot of moving parts here, uh, an awful lot of moving parts, which is, I absolutely. think, your, which is your question. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Uh, and it's great that you, you don't have to resort to like a time turner like they have in Harry Potter where you can be two places at once because it seems like <laughs> you guys are all over the place. Um, <laughs> Every time I turn on the TV and see a game, you guys are there. So that's great that you guys are, are able to do that. You both have run basketball selection committees recently. Uh, Kevin, you were on the men's committee and Nina, the women's committee. What goes into those roles and what were the hardest decisions that you had to make as chair of those committees? Nina, you just finished one. Nina was the chair and pulled off the San Antonio uh, National Championship, which was absolutely an amazing COVID feat. So Nina, why don't you respond to this one? Sure. And then I'd love to hear about your chair year yesterday <laughs> or last year. I think you had some pretty tough decisions as chair of the men's committee in 2020. Um, yeah, listen, it, the, the committee is really rewarding work. It's a lot of work. It's 10 of us that are on campuses and conference offices. So we have day jobs, as we like to say, um, and then volunteer for this committee, watching a zillion games throughout the year, but then also kind of working with the NCAA staff on planning the championship. We did something historic and unprecedented this year, which was putting all 64 teams in one location to play 63 games and crown a national champion and in planning in a very short amount of time um, just due to COVID and, and decision-making processes. The tournament was amazing. We had a great tournament, great games, um, great visibility for the sport and, and amazing storylines. Um, unfortunately, we had some negative storylines um, and it was a, a pain point um, and frankly, an embarrassment at the time, um, but it's leading to really good conversation on how we move forward and, and how we fix um, really what are systemic issues so much more than weight rooms and swag bags, um, but, but getting a little bit deeper and, and figuring out what we can do to address address what's going on relative to women's basketball in the NCAA. Um, and as the, the chair of the committee still, um, I am involved in those, those conversations here moving forward, which um, is, is great. I'm, I'm happy to be at the table and, and happy to help drive some of these conversations. The selection part, um, especially this year, are a little wild, um, just kind of trying to account for very little uh, non-conference opponents games. Some, some conferences played zero, some played you know one, two, three, four games. And we do rely on that data, um, how our team's challenging themselves out of conference. Um, we had to account for COVID pauses. We had to account for players, not just injured players that are unavailable, but maybe COVID players that are unavailable. How's the team playing after an extended pause? Um, there were just a lot of different conversations. And then this year, the women, uh, we moved to using a new metric instead of using our RPI, we used the net. So we had a, a, a completely different um, set of data than a, a typical year. But again, I think we were able to put together a great bracket. I would say the perfect bracket because the number one, number one won the whole darn thing. Um, and so I'll pat my fellow committee members on the back for, for a perfect bracket. But it was, it was a lot of fun. Um, and I'm looking forward to one more year uh, on the Women's Basketball Committee. 
Kevin, tell us about the men well, and some I, of your decisions. I'm going to try to be brief. I, I would say that um, my five years on that committee were some of the most gratifying, if not rewarding, experiences I've had um, during my my long tenure in, in college athletics. Uh, we had a great group, um, fantastic group of uh, committee members. And the NCAA staff is, is superb. They're just fantastic. And with Danny Gavitt is the senior vice president for, for uh, NCAA basketball and uh, Joanne Scott, a managing director. And there's so many great people involved in, in this enterprise. And it's a billion dollar business, by the way. I mean, it's about, a, it generates about a billion dollars of resource. So this is not a small business. It's, uh, and again, those 10 committee members do an awful lot of the heavy lifting site selection and not only selecting teams and then bracketing them and, and the rest of it. Uh, there's just an awful lot to, that, that goes into this. I, I was unfortunately, as the recovering chair of uh, now, uh, I guess 13 months ago, um, after serving my four previous years, five years in total on the committee, I was unfortunately, after an 81 year history, the only guy that's ever chaired that thing that had to put it to sleep. And so I'm still dealing with my therapist and they tell me by 2035, I should be able to move beyond this issue. But I would tell you on March 12th, uh, 2020, um, when we put the, uh, the tournament to sleep was arguably the worst day I've ever had uh, professionally, maybe even personally. Uh, it's, it was unbelievable, very traumatic. But at 12.58 on that day, we made, we took a vote. Um, I called for the uh, a motion and a second and we took a vote. And then we had to jump on, uh, on, on an NCAA board of directors call uh, to, uh, to kind of indicate to Mark Emmert and his whole board of directors, which was, at that point was largely uh, college and university presidents and chancellors that we were putting the, the, the tournament down for the year. Um, and so uh, painful. I don't know how to, when you think about the young people that put themselves in a very strong position to compete at a really high level. I mean, we knew who was going to be in the tournament at that point, um, pretty much. Um, and there were some incredible Cinderella stories that were emerging. And again, young people had earned the right and then to kind of pull the rug out from under them again is uh, is something that uh, I'll, I'll long take with me. But the experience, generally speaking, was superb and great people. Um, and it's and it's as we all know on this call, it's you know I think it's the best sporting event in the world, both the men and women's tournaments. And um, to, just to be a part of it was such an honor. I'll stop there. Guys, uh, this has been a wonderful conversation. We've enjoyed it so much. I am going to close with something that we do with every single interview we do here on the DBR podcast. We ask for a Coach K story. Now, usually we're interviewing players. <laughs> so usually they're able to give us some story about him in the locker room or something like that. I will expand it for you guys. If you want to give us a story, a funny, you know, weird, funky story, about another Duke coach, we will allow that. <laughs> but do you have, I, I will phrase it as the Coach K story. It could be, you know, the Coach Lawson story or something else like that, but just give us one story to sort of let us peek behind the curtain of what these folks are like in real life. Well, Jason, I, ha I don't know why this popped into my mind, but I was not at, I'm going first here, as you can tell, and uh, then I'm going to get out of the way. Um, I would tell you that, uh, what popped in my mind was 2008. I wasn't at Duke awfully long at that point. And um, of course, uh, Coach K and Team USA are competing uh, for an opportunity to, to, to play for the, the Olympic gold in Beijing. And um, again, uh, relatively new to Duke. Uh, it's here maybe a month or so. And Mike started talking to me about it'd be really great if you had an opportunity to, to, to jump over to Beijing and to kind of be with us. And, you know, there isn't anybody alive that wouldn't say that's a great idea. And so I jumped on that and uh, found myself in, in Beijing. And um, I got there about, uh, gosh, just before the, the semifinals, I guess, and a couple of days early. Um, and I attended a practice or whatever but I had an awful lot of disposable time on my hands. So I apologize for the long story, but it has a, 
I, I'm going to get to a place that I think you're going to giggle. It's great about. so far. <laughs> okay. So, so anyway, I have way too much time in my hands. And so I've kind of got the better part of a day and I don't really have much to do. And I'm in Beijing and I'm by myself at that point. And I remember going to the concierge saying, if you had a whole bunch of time, what would you do? He said, you, get, you need to go to the silk market. Okay. I, I'm not even sure if I understood what the silk market was prior to then. Didn't pay much attention to it. So I said, how do I get there? And he gives me a kind of a card and says, show this to the driver because they don't speak English, which is predictable, obviously. And, and here's another card for, to give to the driver to bring you back because that person won't speak English either. So I'm on this little adventure by myself and I give my card, my driver, and we get on, you know, uh, I, I, what I would call, I grew up on Long Island, it would be like the Long Island Expressway. And I mean, it is jammed. And so we're, we're not moving for 30 minutes at a clip. And it takes me a couple hours, it seems, and I'm sure that's an exaggeration to get to the soap market. But along that ride, I can remember as uh, this, again, taxi driver uh, picks me up outside the team hotel. And there's a, a Michael Jordan uh, silhouette on the side of the building. And he kind of has a sense, I think, as to what building and what's going on. And I, I and he and by the way, we're in this uh, this this. Uh, fairly small car and our noses aren't 10 15 inches apart i mean i'm in the front seat next to him and um uh, and he's talking to me a month you know 100 miles an hour i'm i'm returning the conversation he has no idea what the hell i said i have no idea what he's saying but i think he's trying to tell me he's excited about the olympics i think he's trying to tell me hey are you at the men's basketball hotel how cool is that and, and i have no idea what he's saying and all of a sudden, I mean, we're talking like we're both understanding each other. We're bored to death, 30 minute gridlock. And all of a sudden he turns to me wide eyed and he says, Krzyzewski. And he pronounces it better than anybody. <laughs> I mean, so that was it. So I got it. I mean, he was very plugged in to Team USA and our legendary iconic coach. You can't make this stuff up. That happened. That that is that is amazing. That's so that's a hysterical one. Nina, do you got a good? That, well, how the heck could I top that? Are you kidding me? <laughs> <laughs> no, listen. I mean, you guys just asked out, out, you know, to humanize our coaches, and I will just say we've got. 20 head coaches across 27 sports and you know it we know um about them about their families and it's just so great to be ingrained in not only the duke community but the durham community with um with these coaches that that are throwing in with us here in duke athletics so don't i can't top that funny story with a funny one i'm gonna leave it at that <laughs> well i think that's a that's a good place to end it so um uh, Nina and Kevin, thank you so much for joining us on the Duke Basketball Report podcast. I think this was a really fun conversation about what's sort of going on behind the scenes at Duke. And and as much as we talk about the on the court, maybe slightly off the court things that, that are going on around the men's basketball program and some of the other programs at Duke, I think there's a whole lot to it that that fans of Duke and, and alumni of Duke don't really see. So so thank you for for letting us take that peek today. So Sam, Jason, Donald, honored to be with you. I'm signing off. Thank you. Great to be with you guys. Thanks for the invitation. So gentlemen, I, I think we'd like to say thank you again to Kevin and Nina for joining us today. This was this was a lot of fun and and we've had some some good luck recently on on getting fun guests on the DVR podcast. So hopefully folks have been enjoying those. Jason, I will start with you. Give me some reactions to the, the conversation that we just had. I think we, we touched on a lot of different subjects there that are interesting, not just to us, but hopefully to, to Duke fans all over. Yeah. So first of all, I'll say um, one of the best Coach K stories that didn't actually involve Coach K. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and the funny thing is i know that silk market i know exactly where he was going i have been to said silk market and i know the traffic that he was in to get to said silk market so i can i can only imagine what that what that conversation was like uh so great story uh and i appreciate dr white giving us that um i was i'll just say it i was struck 
my questions about you know name image and likeness and transfers and one and done and the such um i was struck by how i guess i'd say muddled their answers were it is clear that they want to have a solution but that they are trying to box with one, one arm tied behind their back because of the NCAA's inability to figure out the rules and, and figure out the changes that are coming in these really fundamental ways to, to player movement, to player compensation. I thought they raised a lot of really interesting, uh, you know, unintended consequences and the such. Kevin White, I mean, for him to express that amount of concern about you know, how it's going to change the finances of all of college athletics. These are really thoughtful things. And these are very thoughtful people. Um, and, and I heard a lot of angst and not a lot of answers. I don't blame them, by the way. I'm not saying that they're, they're very prepared. They are, you know, like I said, really, really smart folks who have been doing this for a long time. And the fact that they don't have answers, I mean, tells you how complicated and how difficult these issues are going to be to resolve. That was my main takeaway from all of this. Uh, I guess, I guess there's a piece of me that that hope they're gonna be like, "Don't worry, we got this piece of cake." <laughs> uh, it's hard. I, I don't know what that. Yeah, I don't know what that answer would have been. I was hoping they had it, but they didn't, and I don't blame them for not having it because I think it's not a piece of cake. It's a the the whole realm of college athletics, not just the NCAA, but all the institutions that are involved here. It's a it's a massive ship that they are trying to turn, and it's one thing I think for us to talk about, these are some rules they should put in place. This is how it should work. You know, this is not like some aspects of this system is not fair to this particular group of stakeholders. But what I think they emphasize to you is that it's not just the players that we're thinking about here. And it's not just the players on the teams that we talk about the most, like we're here to talk about men's basketball, but there are 20 something other programs just at Duke that all need to, I don't know if they all need to exist, but, but they at least need to be taken care of in some way. And, And if, and if it means that that Duke has to decide to retire some programs. And look, Duke is not in the business of retiring sports teams. They haven't done so in a very long time. They've added a team in the last few years. That was softball. But otherwise, it's not like programs are getting cut. So these administrators don't want to cut programs. They don't want to cut the services that they're providing to student athletes. So the other programs are are a part of the stakeholders here. Administration, both within the athletic department and then across the university, as well as all the donors. And I think that the, the one maybe part of of Kevin White's description that I think is is probably more flexible than than he's giving credit to is there being a set pie for what people are going to pay for college athletics. I do think that there's that there's a lot of money out there that is not ending up funneling through the sort of official systems of college athletics because it's not allowed right now. And so there's probably more money to be made by everybody once you loosen the rules up. But that is not infinite, and that, that does not mean that the pie can grow forever. There are there are only so many eyeballs watching televisions, and, and, and there's only so many hours in the month that, that someone can spend watching sports. So there is a limit to how much can be done here, and I, I think I, I hopefully explained this in the course of the interview that I've, I've interacted with, with Kevin and Nina a fair bit from being on campus, not just on this podcast, but, but also as a student, and to Jason's point, they're smart, sharp people. They're not like they're not here to obfuscate and and mess around with with these systems. They're trying to make them work, and they're doing it from the inside. So so I thought his answers were were both of their answers were really measured and and sort of respectful and and, and understanding in that way. And it's not that any of these people want to 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 tear down the the rights of student athletes or something. They're trying to figure out how to appease a long list of stakeholders in the process of all these changes. And I think when it comes to that, you know, Nina King, fellow JD, you know, has the legal mind. And I like that she brought up the fact that like, hey, this is going to be a problem in less than two months and we need to figure it out yesterday. Like she she the fact that she reiterated that. I know, Jason, you've brought that up uh, in the last couple of weeks, but that's the issue here. They have to deal with that. But I think just really quick on just so folks understand, because they're make I know we are really plugged in on this. They are clearly very plugged in on it, but there may be people out there who don't understand this. I want people to understand on July 1st, uh, I believe it is four states. There are four states states. will have have legislation come into effect on name, image and likeness where the universities within those states. And one of them, I I know one of them is Florida. I think California is also one of them. I forget. California is the big one. 
Yeah. But in universities in those states will be allowed to begin um, letting their players in whatever sport they want uh, accept money for name, image, and likeness stuff, for endorsements. Um, in fact, I, I believe at least one of the states has a rule that if the school tries to block the player, that the school will be breaking the law. Like the schools literally cannot stop these players from signing endorsement contracts, from, from monetizing their social media and all that other kind of stuff. July 1st, it starts. Now the NCAA has options. The NCAA can file injunctions in court. And I think the NCAA probably will file an injunction and try and get this slowed down in court. But the train is pretty much leaving the station and the NCAA doesn't know where it is on that train or if it's going to be on that. It is craziness that is about to happen. Uh, and and it, it will not work if, if Duke cannot provide the same kind of things to an athlete that schools in Florida and California and other states can. It, it just won't work. Yeah. So here's the thing about... Sorry, all, continue all, now, Donald. I apologize. Yeah. <laughs> The thing about this interview is that I think we've had fascinating interviews. This might've been the most important interview we've ever done because it has peeled back several layers of the veil that we've, we haven't been able to do. We've gone into the front office of an athletic department, how they manage all of these teams, how they manage all of these programs, all the nuances between the programs, how they, you know, deal with one and dones in basketball and trying to, maintain a fencing program that is top-notch how do they do all that and to do that with such success it the leadership duo that they've created is is second to none in athletics and i've been inside the athletics of several different schools this right here the way they're able to interact with each other the way they're able to work together to split up the work and to use their department to their advantage to make sure that everything is tip top is incredible so i i think i, I really appreciate both of them giving that insight because I think it's important for fans to understand that, hey, when something feels like it's not going right with the basketball, with the men's basketball team, with the football team, with the women's basketball team, with men's soccer, with women's golf, those two have to deal with all of that. And we as fans can pick and choose what we get angry at and where we think they, that our university may be going slow, but they are on top of all these things and they have to balance all of these different ships trying to get them in the same direction. So, I really appreciate that insight that they were able to give with a, not just the revenue-driven sports, but an array of Olympic sports and just the, the, the battles that they have to kind of go through to make sure that all those programs remain on top of their game. And by the way, they, they touched on this very briefly. And Kevin White, I think, mentioned that it's like 25% of their revenue is coming from donors. But there's a whole financial aspect of this as well that they are also overseeing and making sure that there's money coming from donations, there's money coming from sponsors, there's money coming from ticket sales that are supporting all of these programs and making sure that they can all run. Because as he said, there's a lot of employees in this organization as well. And Donald and I have both been part of that. I think I think one of them mentioned that there's a, a very long list of, of part-time staff that are part of making the athletic department go. Donald and I have both been uh, members of their staff. I was, I, I think I, when I first met Kevin White last year, I, I said to him, I was like, I, you know, my first interaction with you was as your employee when I was working for the football team. Uh, and cause he would, he would come to practices every morning and just sort of walk around, which was always fun. But yeah, there's a, there's a, a lot going on in these athletic departments that I don't think we, we think about regularly when we talk just about, you know, what the performance is of the, the basketball team on the court and, and, and stuff like that. And they're everywhere. I, I meant it when I told them that every time I'm watching field hockey, the softball, the football, the men's basketball, the women's basketball, one or both of them are in the stands watching. It may be in a corner somewhere, uh, just kind of overseeing things or in the crowd, but they have been made a point to be very visible. And I think I, I, I'm pretty sure that the student athletes appreciate that they have an athletic department that is really tied into their success and, and wanting them to succeed and, and cheering actively rooting for them by being supportive at their matches. Jason, one of the things that we talked about in this interview that I think is probably most top of mind for Duke fans when it comes to the needs of the athletic department is, is the coaching searches and, and the replacing of coaches. We didn't really get to ask them directly about replacing coach K or replacing coach Cutcliffe, but what did you kind of hear in their answers about Carol Lawson or a little bit about what they said about UNC when it comes to 
the way that a, an athletic department like Duke is thinking about replacing a, a, a Mike Krzyzewski or a David Cutcliffe someday. I mean, I think it's fascinating that they say they sort of have a revolving list um, all the time, you know, in their back pocket, as they put it, of, of who the potential coaches would be. And, and, and you know, I, I, hadn't, I hadn't thought that much. Sam, I think it was you who, who made the point, you know, oh, you know, a coach is here for, for 10, 15, 20 years, and then you have to replace them in a matter of days. It's, uh, I hadn't thought about how quickly the process has to go. Yeah, and so it makes sense. Of course they have these names in their back pocket. I, I mean, I, I just, in the interest of transparency, I want folks to know that we had to kind of clear most of these questions in advance. There were some slightly more pointed questions that we had wanted to ask and we were, uh, we were candidly told don't, don't ask that. Yeah, we, don't, we don't want to talk want to answer. about that. They don't want to. Yeah. So, so I, I, I mean, and, and I think we owe it to our audience. They should, they should understand. We aren't idiots. We, we know that there were some questions we prob- that you probably say, how could they have not asked that? We, we kind of wanted we to We probably did. <laughs> but we, here's the other thing, Jason. We had the same, we had the same dynamic in class last year when, when they were teaching our class. And by the way, if you want a preview of what it's like to be in, in their class, this interview was exactly... <laughs> The way that, that things go in their class, where it, it, it's so funny that the, the dynamic carries over, where Dr. White will will say a bunch of things and he'll say, "And Nina, what would you like to add to that?" And then and then she will will answer, or, or he'll say like, "Well, I don't know that I'm I'm the right person for that." Nina, I think will will answer these questions. Uh, that's exactly how he runs his class. But but it was the same thing where we would there were days in class where we would just ask him questions about you know all the different things about running the program, and he was like, "Look, I'm just not going to tell you about." about you know what the plan is to replace coach k that's not that's not top of mind and 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 i'm not sharing that with anybody well i think we we've talked about this before the fact that in almost 14 years that dr white has not had to replace a men's basketball coach or a football coach which is rare in college athletics he has replaced a you know duke women's basketball coach and that's Basically, and just and Norm Ogilvie, who was the track and field coach, just retired. So he, is, he had to replace him. But you still have John Donosky from lacrosse. You still have, you know, Rennie from soccer, Dan Brooks from golf, who have been there for a long time. And you would think just the law of averages would say that he would, uh, as an athletic director, that Dr. Wright would have to replace one of them. But the next athletic director is going to probably have to be ready to replace five or six long-time coaches in our program and oh yeah they just created a duke softball and had to hire a coach so that back pocket not only had you know they had to really create a back pocket for that sport so i think that's very interesting and i know that we've gone very long on this episode so far so we don't need to speculate too much about what's happening in the athletic director position but kevin white is stepping down soon they haven't named a replacement and if you want my bet my bet is we were just talking to his replacement on that uh, on that interview with, with Nina King. I agree. She's I been mean, certainly if they go in-house, there's no question. That yeah, it has Nina to be King. And, um, and I'm not sure why Duke would desperately want to poach from, you know, take an athletic director from someone else. I think when you have someone as qualified as she is, who's been here as long um, and knows the culture, look, they talked about, we didn't get into it. One of the things they talked about in the coaching search, Sam, when you asked me about this and I, immediately diverted us into something else. <laughs> uh, but with the coaching search, one of the fascinating things to me was that they talked about, you know, knowing the culture and, and being a good fit at Duke, which, which to me is some code for, you know, a little bit of code for um, someone who's already connected perhaps to the programs in some way. Uh, I, I don't know why you wouldn't follow that same kind of maxim when it comes to picking your next athletic director when you have someone already here who, who clearly is capable of it. And the last time Duke replaced an athletic director was when they hired Kevin White back in 2008. Things are very different at Duke now than they were then. This is before, you know, we, we didn't get into all the fundraising that, that Kevin White led in the time that, that he was on campus. I know that we talked about this a little bit with um, David Rubenstein about how, you know, the, the, the campus has changed so much in the last 10 years as a result of all that fundraising. But this is also, if you remember early 2008, Duke is still in the in the spotlight on the heels of the lacrosse scandal because that happened in the spring of 2006. This is only two years later, less than two years after all that news broke that Joe Oliva left Duke to go be the athletic director at LSU. So a lot of changes from the and and I think 
when you want to compare that AD search to this one, a big difference is that then I think Duke was saying, let's bring in somebody from outside who we know has a good track record and, and can, can sort of right the ship here, um, which is why I think they ended up with Kevin White. Nowadays, it's the Duke Athletic Department is in, is in pretty good shape. The football program is in much better shape, you know, regardless of the, of the like wins and losses from the last year. The football program, the, the facilities, the men's basketball program, women's basketball program are all in much better shape today than they were back in, in 2008 when this hire was made. So um, th- that's why I think that it sort of makes sense to, to keep things going the way they are. But we've gone on too long on, on this episode. I'm sure we will talk more about the Duke athletic director. We'll talk about Duke coaching searches a ton, not as much on the, on the sort of men's basketball on the ground news as, as we would normally be bringing you this time of year. But of course we'll be back anytime that something breaks. Jason has episode five of return to glory coming out this week. It has been a ton of fun. Jason, do you have a, do you have a preview for us? For yeah, what's coming so this I, week? I, I want folks to know I've been working on episode five, which is um, mostly about, uh, the the game where Carlos Boozer gets injured, um, uh, folks. If you don't remember the two thousand, it's season. over. <laughs> yes, it's over. Right, uh, it, which was a a huge huge moment for that team, and it transitioned the way they played basketball. But I, I want people to know. Uh, so I was going back through all my notes and the transcripts and things like that, and I came across Shane Battier, where Shane starts talking about sort of what happened. Um, immediately after that game, the, the post-game locker room and, and the practices the next day leading up to the Carolina game. Shane Battier talks for eight consecutive minutes without me in, interjecting a single word. And it is every single second of it is gold. It's just like incredible insight into what was going on in the team's makeup and their minds and what Coach K was changing and how they decided how they were going to play differently. And I'm like, am I going to use a full eight-minute stretch? Like... <laughs> So I'm actually probably going to divide it up into a couple different places, but it is, there's, it's incredible stuff that's coming your way, people. I can't wait to bring it to you. Very cool. So we will, we'll look forward to that drop on Friday. And of course, we'll be back anytime there is news to discuss. So uh, stay in touch with us, dbrpodcast at gmail.com. As always, I believe I've closed the survey now, but if you want to send us notes about how we're doing, you can always email them to us. We are the, the email line is, is always open, as we say. So dbrpodcast at gmail.com. Stay tuned for Return to Glory, episode five coming this week. But until next time, for Jason Evans and for Donald Wine, I am Sam Klein. This has been episode 311 of the Duke Basketball Report podcast. Duke Bang, take us home.